A church invites me to preach, but says, here's what we'd like you to talk about. It, it, it means you can get right away into preparation. You're not wondering, where will I go? So I was given this wonderful chapter 21 of John's Gospel. And it's a great story, so I, I, I want to read it. I was nearly asking, going to ask John Donaldson to read it, because I love his voice. It's a much better voice than mine. But let, let's hear John 21. Great story. Afterwards, Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, I will go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore and the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did. They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed into the boat and dragged the net, dragged the net ashore. It, it was full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus said again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and, and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper. And he said, Lord, and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that the disciple, that disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things. And I wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose, then the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And we pray for God to make that passage um, relevant to us personally. You see, the, the events which our thoughts are going to orbit around this evening, about which we've just been reading, um, they took place during a wonderful phase in the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, join me. Let your imagination really go with me here. For 33 years, the shadow of the cross has been over Jesus Christ. 33 years. Uh, and the darkness had intensified. And then there was that awful final week. And his trial, which was a mockery of justice, and then the awful cruelty of Golgotha. Abandonment at Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a, what a, a period of time and what a climax to the awfulness of those years with the shadow of the cross and then the cross itself. But that was Friday. Sunday had come. Jesus was alive again. The cross was behind him. It was finished. And I'm convinced, and I know that there's a danger of being misunderstood, but I'm convinced that these 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, I honestly believe these were fun days for Jesus. I don't want to trivialize it. Don't be shocked at this. Christ's mission on earth was solemn, deeply serious, beyond anything that we can imagine. And to follow Jesus is a serious calling. No doubt about it. It's not for wimps faithfully following Jesus. But our God is the God of joy. Real, memorable fun. You, you know, in his presence, the Bible tells me, is fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And at the time of this story, the suffering is over, the shadow of the cross is gone, and nobody will convince me that Jesus did not have fun during those 40 days. Don't you think it was great fun 
to catch up on the two on the road to Emmaus, knowing full well what they were talking about. And yet to say, you know, what, what, what's the talk at the moment? What, what, what are you guys talking about as you walk along? Mustn't that have been fun? Well, was it exciting? Was it not exciting? Of course it was to drop into that room full of depressed, mourning disciples. I don't think Jesus came into the room and said, boo! But, 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 but I do believe that he enjoyed it. I, I think this was fun. You know, they, they were not expecting this. This was, this was amazing. I don't want to trivialize these uh, momentous occasions. But it was fun. And, and, and we, we, shouldn't, we need to develop a theology of fun. Really, we do. Some of us, in fact, several here this morning, have been attending uh, a, a course, a course of seminars run by the Contemporary Christian Organization, where my pastor and your friend, David Dunlop, has been lecturing with Bishop Harold Miller. And they've been, it, it's been entitled uh, Rhythms and Rules for Christian Growth. And what they've been helping us to do is to set up a framework in our lives where we don't just take growth for granted. We really endeavor to set up a framework that will encourage and help the plant of Christ-likeness to grow. And it's been, of course, there have been some very solemn things like prayer, wonderful. And thanks for that freedom just to pray this morning. But, but you know, prayer and uh, the, the whole idea of holy reading, the Word of God, and, and healthy biographies and so on, and rest, the importance of Sabbath and rest. The bishop and David have been talking about these things. But you know what really thrilled me too? We need to build play into our Christian life. Let our children see that. We've got to at times relax and laugh. And I believe firmly that Jesus was doing that here. Do you know, David read for... I, I, I'm a great fan. Now, whether I can find this or not. Uh, I'm a great fan of C.S. Lewis. I've had a great lot of help from his writings. Uh, and David, when he was given this talk on play, pointed out something that vindicated me for the line I'm taking this morning. I was nearly addressing a guitar there. I thought, I thought, there was, I thought maybe I do need my glasses. Um, but but uh, David pointed out, and, and I went back and read this again. He pointed out that when Aslan came back to life, when he was resurrected, when the great stone altar cracked and the little mice ate away the cords that were tying him there and he rose from the dead, what was the first thing they did? And then I got excited. David said they played. Children, said Aslan, I feel my strength coming back to me. Catch me if you can. He stood for a second. His eyes were bright. His limbs were quivering. His tail was lashing himself. And then he made a leap high over their heads, landed on the other side of the table laughing. Though... She didn't know why Lucy scrambled over to catch him, chased him round the hilltop, hopelessly now out of her reach, and then letting him catch up. 
No diving, no tossing in the air, his huge, beautiful, velvety paws catching her again and again and then stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled together over and over, laughing as they went. Such fun in Narnia had never been experienced before. I think that what Lewis discovered was what I'm suggesting to you. The resurrection had taken place. Jesus was alive. It was finished. And he had fun. I hope you don't think I'm being irreverent. And at this juncture that we're talking about this morning, I think the fun was continuing. He comes to the lakeside. He knows the seven who are there well. He knows them all. But these seven, most of them fishermen. And they're out there fishing all night. And Jesus gets a fire going and breakfast prepared. And these experienced men come towards the shore in the misty morning. And he said, uh, haven't you any fish, lads? I'm sure there was a tongue-in-cheek, there was a, a degree of, you know, funny sarcasm there. You mean, you're the experienced guys, no fish. He was having fun. He was having fun. And you remember how John, through the mist, strained his eyes. And he said, oh, it's, it, it's the Lord. Wow, the excitement on the boat. And then they come ashore. I mean, I hope when you're reading the Word of God, you, you try and enter into the drama of the story. These are wonderful stories. I did Passover recently uh, at St. John's Orangefield, and going through Passover, realizing the story that was here. You know, tremendous. And how Jewish fathers, when they were celebrating Passover, they dramatized it. When they came to the, the, the cup of the curse, they trembled so that the wine spilt. Do we tell our children Bible stories with drama, with excitement? It's the Lord, says, says John. And Peter leaps out of the boat, and you know the rest of the story there. And eventually they have this wonderful alfresco breakfast. Wow, wasn't it, wasn't it great? Wasn't, wasn't this an exciting experience? And when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Do you remember what Peter had said? Even though they all deny you, even though they all desert you, I won't. Peter, do you love me more than these? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. And again he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. I want us to really get personally into this story. I want us to put ourselves where, where Peter was. There, there's no record of any conversation over breakfast. We can, 
We can only speculate. We can picture the situation, and there's grounds to believe this is the way it happened, that Jesus said to Peter, let's have a walk along the shore. Let's move away from the rest. I want to talk to you, Peter. There's also some suggestion that as they moved along the shore, John came behind them. Is it possible John was a little bit jealous of this intimacy with the Lord Jesus? After all, he was the one that had the reputation for being so intimate with Jesus. He was the one whose head leaned against his breast at the supper. And Peter must have been wondering, because his mind would go back, of course it would, to that last occasion when he had been in the company of Jesus. And there was a fire in the high priest's garden. You remember? I don't know him. I've never seen him. I'm not one of them. I'm sure it came back into his mind. What's the master thinking now? What's he thinking? Are we still friends? Have I blown it? I mean, isn't it natural that those are the sort of thoughts that we'd be going through his mind? And now he's alone with Jesus. They're walking along the beach. And Jesus just cuts to the chase. He doesn't really raise the issues in in a direct way. He does for reasons that Commentators have said all sorts of, given all sorts of, he he goes back to Peter's old name, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I'm not going to labor on the points that I've I've heard sermons on this, some excellent sermons, some better than I can preach, but I'm not going to labor on the dialogue and the various Greek words for love. And I'll tell you why, because Jesus didn't speak Greek. He spelled Aramaic, and there's only one word in Aramaic for love. So whether it was the different emphasis he put on the word, we, we, we just cannot be sure. But the paramount message in this story is, without a doubt, that there is forgiveness, there is warmth, there is reinstatement for Peter, And Jesus extends the same to this congregation this morning. Warmth and forgiveness and reinstatement. However often we've messed it up, this is the very nature of our God. And he has one question for us this morning. Do do you love me? One question for us. Do you love me? Look, is this not amazing? Is this not amazing that the eternal, unchangeable, holy maker of heaven and earth, the one before whom the angels who have never sinned bow their faces and cry, holy, holy, holy. And he wants from you and from me voluntarily our love. He who needs nothing seeks your love this morning. Is this not moving? And he went to such ends to show us 
the love that he had for us. But he seeks affirmation. Sought it from Peter. Didn't go back over his feelings. He just asked, do you love me? Peter was the object of a very personal and severe prophecy that day. He was asked to drink a very bitter cup. The, the, the reference to people taking him and stretching out his arms, no one could have foreseen what the fulfillment of that would be. But we know from secular history that they determined in Rome to crucify Peter because of his stand for Jesus. And he said, no, I'm not worthy to die the same way as my Lord. And they crucified him upside down. His old age was not to be an easy ride. He, he, he indeed had to drink a bitter cup. But there on the beach on that early morning, he was inclined to prevaricate. What about him? What about John who's following behind? What about him? And Jesus seems quite sharp on this point. Peter, this is between you and me. This is between you and me. Can, can, can we come to terms with that this morning? We're collectively here to worship God, and that's wonderful. And we were led in worship in an exciting way, and we were encouraged to pray. And, and there's something very special about collective worship. But don't duck this. Please, God has business with you this morning, personally, and with me. He does at times deal with crowds, but the way of God is to deal with individuals. Come to terms with that. I have specific plans for you. He said, I want you, as he said to Peter, I want you to follow me. We'll all end up in the same ultimate destination, in the presence of God to dwell with him for all eternity. But the route that Jesus takes as he takes your hand is going to be different. Can you cope with that? He's simply saying, you follow me. Don't, 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 don't worry about where Suzanne's going or the route he's taken with Ed or Liz McBriar. What about you? You follow, you follow me. I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. I'm not asking you to go, I'm asking you to come. I'll take you. You've got to follow. You've got to follow. Do you really believe that God is with you? Do you really believe him when he says, I want you to follow me, but stay close? Because we're going together. I, the, the, the older I get, the more 
significant, I'm finding it, and Betty knows where I'm going with this story. The more important I'm finding practicing the presence of God, recognizing that he's with me. And I, I was influenced in this profoundly recently when a friend said to me, Haddon, have you ever heard of John Daniel Jones? And I hadn't. John Daniel Jones. He said, well, you know, I know you read a bit of church history and so on, and you would be into people like Spurgeon and so on. Well, John Daniel Jones was the minister of the Congregational Church in Bournemouth in Victorian times. He was born the day after uh, the assassination of the American president, what do you call Lincoln? Lincoln. He died in 1945. So, you know, he, he stretched two centuries, but... John Daniel Jones, I heard a story about him which really profoundly impacted me. If you had visited John Daniel Jones' vestry, you would have found that in his vestry there were two chairs. And so he might have said, Suzanne, let's have a chat together. I'll go and get a chair. And you would have said, no, there's another one here. He would have said to you, Joanne, I'm sorry, but that's where Jesus sits. The other chair's mine. You can have it, but I'll go and get a chair for me. And I, when I heard that story, I was in my study, and I don't have two chairs in my study. I have only one. It's too small for two chairs. And I began to pray. And suddenly, and I know you'll say you have an overactive imagination, but I suddenly felt, no, hold on. How can I sit while Jesus stands? So I stood up, offered my chair to Jesus, and I knelt down in front of him. Now, here's where my imagination really troubled me. I was afraid to put out my hands in case I would feel his feet. The reality of his presence was so amazing. I wanted to be like that. Practice the presence of God. I've promised never to leave you nor forsake you, he says. Do you believe it? then practice it. Enjoy his presence. Recognize that when he asks you to follow him, and it will mean different paths for each of us, he says, I'll be there in every situation. There'll be times when we'll laugh together. There's been times when we'll cry together. There'll be times when it's difficult, and times when it will be easy. But I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Stay close to him as you follow. Stay close to him. I was talking to Val English this week. Um, I don't know if you know, but Val has been through the mill. He's got a um, problem that a lot of men has. He's got... Uh, cancer. Um, 
prostate cancer, and he's been getting fairly severe treatment for it. But into the bargain, Eileen has been um, unwell. She's got heart trouble and has been quite poorly, in fact, virtually off her feet. Um, and I, I love Val English. I don't claim to know him terribly well, but I've great respect for him. And he, when I got onto the phone, was more concerned about the fact that I'd had a couple of strokes and so on, uh, and was desperately sympathetic. And, and, and I said, look, Al, th this call is about you. How's it going? And he acknowledged that these are difficult times. Then he left me with a quote that, wow, I'll treasure to the day I die. It's a quotation that... Um, comes from David Wilkinson, who some of you know is, is a, a theologian and, and, and a scientist and very much into the charismatic gifts. He's a wonderful man. But Wilkinson has been through the mill too. And Val said to me, Haddon, here's this quote from Wilkinson. When you have to drink a difficult cup when the cup is painful and hard. And David Dunlop recently preached on an impossible text, consider it pure joy when you... I'd said to David, I don't think I'm going to come back to church. Uh, but, 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 you know, there are times when it's hard. And I'm not claiming it's hard at the moment. I'm, I mean, you guys have been so kind and helpful to me this morning, and although I'm glad of this to hold on to, I, I, I have neither pen nor ache and I sleep like a log, so I have nothing to complain about. But there are times when you feel sorry for yourself, and there are some of you here who are going through difficult times. Here's the quote from Wilkinson. Remember, child of God, that it is your father's hand that holds the cup from which he asks you to drink. Isn't that beautiful? It is your father's hand that holds the cup from which he asks you to drink. And he knows everything. And he'll never ask you to take more than he'll give you the strength to cope with. Follow me, he says. He loves you. And he has one dominant question. A question that eclipses all others this morning. And in a sense, it's a very easy sermon. Because all I'm here to do and to emphasize is that God loves you. But he covets your love in return. And I find that exciting. And so I put to you again the question that was asked of Peter, do you love me? It's time I've stopped. I can't say no words. I became a man for you, he says. I lived for you. I was despised and rejected for you. I'm never going to leave you. By my spirit, I'll be there. I share your joy and I share your pain. I'm preparing a place for you. But tell me, my child, do you love me? 
I want to be able to say yes. I can say yes, but there are times when the style of my life doesn't quite equate with that. So I want to say yes and mean it this morning and sing it with you as we close, but I want to go out there and live in a way which shows him that I love him. <coughs> and so I put it to you again, very simply. And I know most of you. And I love you. But nothing like he does. And he says this morning to you, put your name in there. Peter. Adam, Betty, Suzanne, do you love me? Do you love me? Could we sing it together? Could you help us, please? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. You know, I have great recollections of you and others joining with this. To me, it's a special piece. But let's... With the help of the Holy Spirit, sing it in a way that will raise into the very presence of the Almighty and bring a smile to the face of God. I love you, Lord.